Good morning. My name is Dan Kent. I'm a teaching pastor here at Woodland Hills Church. I'm also the director of comedic affairs, the DCA, as it's called in the business. A uh, couple of quick announcements before I get into my message. We have our uh, summer get together music fest. Uh, Cornhole MuseCast celebration on uh, July 14th to the 16th, and it's going to be fun. We're going to have a a live MuseCast with Shauna and myself, and then also a couple people. uh, You probably don't know them, Greg Boyd and Paul Eddy or something like that. Most people are coming for Shauna, and I I get that. I get that. So, But that's going to be like a a live Q&A, and uh, uh, we're going to all pick Greg and Paul's brains about uh, the Bible and all of the questions that we have about that. And then uh, we've got Music Fest on Saturday, and then on Sunday after the service, we're going to have baptism. And so uh, if you are around, please try to make some space in your calendar for that. And if you are not from around here, uh, let us know that you're coming, and let us know if you have any questions about staying and and things like that. Um, I'm a little rattled before I get into my message because I don't know if Danny is still here, but he needs to work out that last song because sometimes it says, Good Lord... And then sometimes it does that twice, and I never got that right. And so sometimes when everybody else was quiet, I was saying, good Lord, the second time, and it's kind of thrown me off. And so I think I heard one or two other people totally miss that, and uh, we were supposed to apply the brake, and we hit the gas or something. It was a mess. Um, one other piece of business before I get into my message, and that is, okay, I've got to just keep these on. Someone noticed that I keep taking these on and off, and I'm not going to do that. Uh, one other piece of business is, is for Greg's message next week, we would love your participation uh, in helping us uh, kind of get a feel for where you're at on a question. And the question is simply this. When you think of the God of the Old Testament, on a scale of 1 to 10, 10 being most threatening, how threatening is the God of the Old Testament in your mind? That's the first number we want you to text in. The second number we want you to text in is how threatening is Jesus in your mind when you think of Jesus? And you can text that to the number on the screen. If you're listening on the podcast, I'm thinking about you. The number is 651-321-3130. Now, uh, we are in this series called Unraveling Truth. And basically what we're looking at is we're looking at all of, no, we can't look at all of the reasons, but we're looking at many of the reasons why people leave the faith and leave the church. And we're trying to address some of those things because we just think that, you know, for me at least, I feel like my faith in God has grown over my life. And for some people, that's not the experience they're having. And so we want to look at some of the reasons why people might uh, leave the faith. Last week, uh, Jim Bilby offered just a great message on the hiddenness of God. I thought that was a, an awesome sermon. Was anybody here for that? Yes, that was a great word. I'm actually going to build on some of the ideas that he shared with us in, in my message here today. I'm also going to do something a little bit different. Uh, My tendency when I do a sermon is I like to build intrigue and develop a concept and then go to the scripture to kind of illuminate that idea. Today, I'm going to come right out with the text. I want want people to think about this text as I'm going through my message, and then I'm going to circle back and hit it at the end as well. And that text is Mark chapter 10, verses 17 to 23, and it says this, As Jesus started on his way, a man ran up to him and fell on his knees before him. Good teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus answered, you know the commandments, you shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal, you shall not give false testimony, you shall not defraud, honor your father and mother. Teacher, he declared, 
All of these I have kept since I was a boy. One thing you lack, Jesus said, go sell everything you have and give it to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven and then come and follow me. At this, the man's face fell. He went away sad because he had great wealth. Jesus looked around him and said to his disciples, how hard it is for the rich to enter the kingdom of God. The disciples were amazed at this, but Jesus said again, children, how hard it is for the, for the rich to enter the kingdom of God. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for someone who is rich to enter the kingdom of God. A camel through the eye of a needle. Um, a couple things I want to say about this before I get into kind of my message. The first thing is, this was 2,000 years ago that Jesus said this. There's been a lot of technological advances since then. I saw this news article uh, earlier this week where developers were able to create a Louis Vuitton, I don't know if I'm saying that right, Louis Vuitton probably is how it's pronounced, a Louis Vuitton knockoff handbag that is narrow enough to pass through the eye of a needle. And they sold this microscopic bag for $63,000. And so technology is finding ways to slip wealth through the eye of a needle. And I'll just say here what I said on Twitter, your move, Jesus. What do you got, what do you got to say about that, huh? <clears throat> the second thing I want to say is the confrontation between the rich man and Jesus is about money, but only secondarily. The main point is not really about money here. And so just keep that in your mind as I, as I go through this. And I'll, I'll explain that in a little bit. And then the third thing is what I want to focus on particularly is what the rich man called Jesus. He said, good teacher. And that's the title of this message today is good teacher. Because I want to know, was Jesus a good teacher? Now last time I preached here, it was about a month ago, I asked the question, was Jesus crazy? And, and that came from this uh, idea from C.S. Lewis, which uh, he said that when you look at the story of Jesus in the gospel, you can come away rationally with one of three perspectives on Jesus. Either he was who the gospels say he was, Lord, or he was a liar, or he was a lunatic. And I had not seen anybody really wrestle with the lunatic option, and so I, I kind of looked at that, and I looked at, you know, given what we know about mental health diagnoses, it's, it makes no sense to say that Jesus was a lunatic or crazy or mentally ill or anything like that. Uh, but it's interesting because Lewis offers this trilemma in response to another option that he thinks isn't even worthy of being considered on the trilemma. Uh, and it's called, he says, this is what he says. He says, um, let me find the quote. Here it is. The really foolish thing that people often say about Jesus is this. I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I do not accept his claim to be God. But this is the one thing we must not say, Lewis says. In other words, he's just a great moral teacher. That's what the claim is. And I'm sure people have heard others say that. Uh, now, just on the front end, so you know, I do think that Jesus is a great moral teacher, but I don't think he is only a great moral teacher. That's the first disclaimer I want to give you. The second thing I want to say is that in my last sermon, I said the idea that Jesus is crazy makes absolutely no sense. But in agreement with C.S. Lewis, I would say that claim, that Jesus is crazy, that's a lot more rationally coherent than the claim that Jesus is only a good moral teacher. That's how ridiculous this claim is, and that's what I hope to show. Because at least when you say Jesus is crazy, you can point to things in the text and say, see, that's crazy. When Jesus says, for instance, that when you see me, you see God. 
uh, when Jesus says, I have come to give you eternal life, when he tells the thief on the cross next to him that today you will be with me in paradise. He says all of these things that when you look on it, that's kind of crazy. And so at least you have that. Uh, Now this idea that Jesus was just a great moral teacher, that does not make as much sense. I understand the, the motivation there because I think the motivation is that people don't believe in Jesus, but they want to say something nice to him. They want to say something nice about him without all of that crazy stuff. And so they say he's just a good moral teacher. Unfortunately, that doesn't work. It doesn't work at all because the good moral teaching that people tend to have in mind depends on the crazy things. <laughs> it, it makes no sense without the crazy things. And so, for instance, uh, you know, you think of the good parts of Jesus' teaching. You think of things like the fact that there's meaning in life, the, the fact that humans have dignity, the fact that we each have this inherent worth and, and things like that. Those ideas only make sense if you accept all of Jesus' teaching. For instance, the reason why we think we have inherent worth is because on the one hand, God actually became one of us. That's a pretty good validation of our value, that God actually became one of us. The second thing is that God then, after becoming one of us, sacrificed himself for us on the cross. And so that's why we say we must have worth. It it all hangs on these crazy things that God has done. Um, Meaning in life. Yet we think that there's meaning in life because there's a God who meant things to be a certain way. God meant us to live a certain way. God meant us to be a certain way. And that's why we can say there's meaning in life. You can't really claim things like worth and meaning if you don't have divine sacrifice or a divine being that means something. Um, What happens, I think, is I think that secular society likes to try to smuggle out these good things about Christianity without all of that supernatural weird stuff. And unfortunately, it eventually collapses in on itself. What I would say is I don't think that Jesus was crazy. I don't think that makes any sense to say that. And I would say I believe that Jesus is who Jesus says he is. And for that reason, I think that Jesus was a great teacher, but not only a great teacher. The more important question, I know this sermon is really about like, uh, you know, was Jesus a good teacher? But I think there's a more important question that I really want to spend some time on. And that is this. Are we good students? Are we good students? And that's what I want to turn to now. Now, before I get into the meat of that, (laughs) I'm kind of excited to get to this part. Uh, I have a confession. I was not always a good student. Uh, In fact, I just barely graduated high school by the skin of my teeth. And and that's what I want to share. I want to share with you my favorite personal story, which is how I graduated high school. And uh, to understand this, what happened was, uh, in high school, I fell into this habit of skipping classes. And it's a bad habit. And I went to Burnsville High School, and they had an open campus, which means that for lunch you could leave, you can go to McDonald's or whatever. And in my senior year, in my last semester, it was the best. It was so great because I had lunch, then I had weightlifting, then I had study hall. And seniors did not have to go to study hall, which means that if I just skip weightlifting, I have three hours off every day. And I took full advantage of that. (laughs) Uh, In fact, I only went to the first day of weightlifting, and I never looked back. And and the only reason why I remember that is because on day one, Mr. Nelson gave everybody in class a box of Reese's peanut butter cups. 
And it was, you know, those king-size Reese's peanut butter cups with the four cups. I know that sounds weird that you would give that out at a weightlifting class. But here's the idea. He wanted us to sell those Reese's peanut butter cups to raise money to put mirrors up in the weight room. And so I had this box of 100 king-size Reese's peanut butter cups. And I took that and I threw that in my truck. And I never looked back. And... (laughs) This was in January, and it just so happens that it was a really brutal, cold January. It's like colder than Pluto. I mean, that's how cold it was. And those Reese's peanut butter cups froze solid, just solid. And a lot of people I found out don't really know this, but there are few things in the world that taste better than frozen Reese's peanut butter cups. They're so good. They are so good. And you can kind of anticipate what happened. Uh, Over the next week or so, I ate the whole box. <laughs> like, all of them. All, 100 king-size candy bars, 400 cups, 14,400 calories, <laughs> and it cost me $100 because I had to pay for it. And uh, so I, 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 that's, that's what happened. And uh, so that's the, how the semester started. Fast forward to the end of the semester, it's graduation day. And it's no longer cold. In fact, it is hot. It's like 100 degrees, and it's only like 9 a.m., and we're doing the rehearsal for the graduation ceremony. I'm standing in my black gown, and uh, they're handing out report cards. So I go to the table, and I give the lady my name, and she hands me my envelope. And I tear open the envelope, and I unfold the paper. There, right next to weightlifting, is an F. It's F. In, in my memory, I don't know, maybe I'm imagining this, but it glowed red, and it <laughs> sort of throbbed. <laughs> and uh, I, an F, and, which means that I needed, I needed to pass that in order to graduate, and I'm standing there in my graduation outfit, my little black dress, wondering, am I going to actually be able to graduate? I don't think I can. And so that was just at the rehearsal. It's like six hours before the actual ceremony, and you can imagine how anxious those hours were for me. And I thought, you know, should I even go back to the school? Should I even go to this ceremony? Because I need this in order to graduate. And, uh, but I went. I went and I thought, you know, maybe I'll at least stand with my friends, even if they don't call my name. I'll at least be there for them, you know, being the type of friendly guy I am, you know, supporting my buddies. And I go there, and there's Mr. Nelson. He's coming in from the parking lot with his wife. He's over by the flagpole. He's approaching the stadium. And I run over there and I say, Mr. Nelson, I got an F in weightlifting. And he said, yeah. <laughs> and, and I said, I know, but I, I need to pass this class. And he said, well, you were never there. And I said, yeah, I know I missed a couple classes, like <laughs> all of them. <laughs> uh, but I did come in to the weight room after school. And that's true, I did. Because I thought that I was going to be a superhero and I needed to look good in my superhero costume. So I, I did. I worked out a lot after class. And I said, listen, I, I, I don't need an A or anything. I just need a D minus just so I can graduate with my friends. And he he locked eyes with me and he could see my shame. And he said, well, you did sell more Reese's peanut butter cups than anybody else. (laughs) So I will give you the D minus. And that is how I graduated high school. (laughs) You can't eat your way to success, they told me. And I showed them, I tell (laughs) you. Now, here's what's interesting. I mean, that's interesting. That's my favorite story. But what's interesting is that just a few years later, I was at Bethel College, and I graduated Bethel College. And not only did I graduate, but I had almost perfect A's in college, except for statistics. That bit me. Oh, man, that statistics class was hard. But I had almost perfect A's. 
Not only did I graduate college with almost perfect A's, but I also was asked to teach, kind of last minute, spur of the moment, to teach a class in intro to psychology. And so I was an adjunct. This was just a few years after barely graduating with a 1.3 GPA. So the question is, is how did that happen? What, what, what accounts for that transformation? Well, there's a lot of stuff, uh, but to understand at least part of it, the part that I want to talk about here, is you have to know that before high school, I was actually a pretty good student. Uh, in fact, in ninth grade, I think I won like a math achievement award or something like that. And so I was a pretty good student. But then when high school hit, I, I kind of fell into this slow-motion existential crisis where just progressively everything just seemed utterly meaningless. Like, this is all dumb. Everything is stupid. Everything is futile. What's the point of it all? That kind of thing, you know? And it was heavy. And I would look at things like the Pythagorean theorem, and I'm like, who cares about that? That doesn't mean anything. That's not going to do anything for me. And Shakespeare, I mean, it's just old English. I can't even understand what he's saying. I still can't, to tell you the truth. (laughs) But, uh, you know, the rate of decay of this or that, all those things, it just didn't really seem to me like it really mattered in and of itself. And, uh, and so what I felt was that high school, it was offering me answers to questions that I just didn't have. And I had these questions that high school just didn't really seem to care about. And so I got involved in a church and I thought, well, maybe this is a place where I could kind of figure out some of these things. And the church I went to was great. I loved it. But they didn't really care about these deep things either. Finally, uh, my mentor, Greg Gray, gave me this book. It's a little tattered now. It's Mere Christianity by C.S. Lewis. And I tell you what, I I opened this and I just like the first page and a half, I just felt like little nodes of my brain like lit up for the first time ever. I just felt like my brain was like experiencing something it had never experienced before. I didn't know that people seriously wrestled with the kind of questions that I thought about. I didn't know that people did this professionally, that they took this seriously. And what I found was that not only did Lewis kind of introduce me to some potential ideas for these big sort of questions that I had, he validated the pursuit itself. He said, it's okay to ask these questions. It's okay to pursue these things. And I carry this thing with me. And the reason why it's so beat up is because when Greg gave this to me, I was a, I was a bus boy, and, and I would put this in my apron and, uh, and then I'd bust a table, bring it back to the dishwasher, and then I'd go to the side station, and then I would read a paragraph, and then I'd put that back in my apron, and I'd think about it, and I'd run around. And what happened was, I fell in love with learning. I absolutely fell in love with learning about everything. Now, the Pythagorean theorem, it wasn't just math, it was another language of God. Now, things like Shakespeare and classic literature, it's not just literature, these are case studies showing us the wisdom of God in people's lives. Everything took on new importance. And that is how I fell in love with learning and ended up doing really well in college because I had those big questions, not necessarily resolved, but at least validated. And for some of us, we need those questions resolved first. And the reason why this all relates to what I want to talk about today is because when we think about the question, was Jesus a good teacher? Listen, there were some really good teachers in my high school. It's just that I had different questions. And so when we think about Jesus as a good teacher, we have to realize that sometimes that's going to depend on us and the questions that we bring to Jesus. And I suspect that a lot depends on what we bring to Jesus because Jesus, I don't think, really came to answer all of our questions directly. 
indirectly, yes, but directly, no. And my favorite example of this is in, I think it's in Luke 12, where this, this poor guy goes up to Jesus and said, look, Jesus, my brother, <laughs> he's not sharing the inheritance with me. And I love Jesus's pastoral response. <laughs> Man, who appointed me arbiter over you two? <laughs> he, I don't care about this. But then Jesus gives this wisdom about greed. And in a sense, he ends up solving that problem, but not directly. He doesn't directly answer that question. He answers a bigger question. And I wonder how many people leave the faith because they feel like Jesus is not answering their question. Uh, And really, you could just say that Jesus is not meeting their expectation because a question really has in it this implicit expectation. And I love what Jim said last week. Actually, his wife said, Jim shared it with us. That an expectation is simply a premeditated disappointment. Man, I think that's right. Expectations have the danger of being a premeditated disappointment. And I wonder how many people bring their premeditated disappointments to Jesus and then walk away uh, instead. In fact, what I suspect, this, this idea that our understanding of Jesus as teacher depends on our questions, I suspect that one of the primary tactics of Satan is to slowly and progressively nurture shallow questions in us, to just progressively keep our expectations and our questions ineffective. And, and so we get just pummeled with distractions of stupid stuff, especially in America with social media and so forth. And it all kind of wears us down. And, and we don't even realize that the society that we're in, the principalities and powers, they just work us over. They slowly, subtly, imperceptibly work us over. And we don't even realize how self-centered and self-oriented we've become. And, and we become obsessed with shortcuts. We become obsessed with shortcuts and, and practical takeaways and life hacks and things like that. And we don't even realize that it's happening to us. And, and there's nothing wrong with a good life hack. I mean, if there's a good way for me to double my rewards points on my membership card, that's great. I want to hear about it. And, and if I could turn my lawn a little bit greener by adding lemon juice to something, I don't know. That might be good. It's just that Jesus doesn't really seem to care about all of those things. Jesus seems to care about something much more profound and much deeper than the types of questions that a lot of people carry around with them. Which is not to say that there's nothing practical about faith. Because, I mean, I believe that the Bible and Jesus, they have come to us to show us that God wants us to live a certain way. That God wants us to be a certain way. And if we live the way that we're supposed to live, and if we are the way that we are supposed to be, that can't help but have positive improvements in our lives. Of course it is. It's just that those positive improvements are the result of living the way that we're supposed to live. They're not the target. They're the natural, organic result of being the types of people that God wants us to be. Uh, They shouldn't be our primary focus. They are the reward. They are the joy that comes from living the way we're supposed to be. In other words, what I'm saying is you cannot life hack your way to holiness. Holiness only comes through real, authentic engagement with God and with his body. The other thing about this is that even though Jesus comes to show us how we're supposed to be and how we're supposed to live, and that does have practical implications, man, what Jesus invites us into is way beyond practical. I mean, Jesus is inviting us into something that is just radically profound. I mean, and you see this in many different ways, but Paul in 2 Corinthians 6, 16, God says this, and God said, I will live with them and walk among them and I will be their God and they will be my people. 
God is calling us into this reality where we're going to walk around with him. I mean, that is profound. There's no life coach for that. There's no life hack for that. I mean, that's, that's something way beyond anything in our small kind of shallow realm. Jesus says in, in John 17, 20, that we are going to have the same profound unity as the triune God, and we are going to dwell with the triune God. John 15, 15, Jesus says to his disciples, I now call you friends. And I tell you what, think about being friends with God. I mean, I, I, it's going to be amazing to just see Jesus, but being friends with Jesus, that is, that, that is so beyond a lot of the questions that we bring. I mean, help me, dis, help me with this inheritance dispute. Look how small that concern is compared to dwelling with God as his friend. Uh, Jesus is calling us into deep, profound, upward things that kind of swallow up a lot of the questions that we have. In other words, what I'm, I'm proposing is I wonder if maybe when we have frustrations with our faith and we have frustrations about Jesus, maybe sometimes that has to do with the types of questions that we're bringing. And the types of questions that we bring to Jesus really sort of shapes how teachable our spirit can be. And this all brings me back to that Mark passage. Because I think that Mark passage I shared shows two things. Number one, it shows just how kind of tenaciously God continues to try to draw us upward out of our shallowness. And number two, it shows us how our questions can reveal just how shallow we actually are. Uh, now, I'm going to read these passages again, uh, but I, I have two things. One, I'm going to start just a couple verses beforehand because I think it matters. And also, number two, uh, I have a confession, I cut out two clauses the first time I read it uh, because I think they matter and I want to focus on them. So let's take a look at them. The first chunk I want to look at is Mark chapter 10, starting in verse 13, going to verse 18. People were bringing little children to Jesus for him to place his hands on them to bless, but the disciples rebuked them. When Jesus saw this, he was indignant. He said to them, let the little children come to me. And do not hinder them, for the kingdom of God belongs to such as these. Truly, I tell you, anyone who will not receive the kingdom of God like a little child will never enter it. And he took the children in his arms, placed his hands on them, and blessed them. As Jesus started on his way, a man ran up to him and fell on his knees before him. Good teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And this is the part I cut out the first time. Jesus says, why do you call me good? No one is good except God. Now, the first time I read that, I thought that's such an odd response because the rich man's question is a good question. I want to know the, the answer to that question. And yet Jesus responds almost like he's offended. Like, why do you call me good? Only one person is good and that is God. And so what is going on there? Was Jesus offended or what? And as I looked at these commentaries on this verse, there wasn't a lot of clarity. There's just a lot of description that Jesus seems put out by this question and there's no like real solution, which means that I can speculate on what I think is going on, which I, I appreciate. Thank you, scholars. This is what I suspect is going on. When Jesus responds with, why do you call me good? Only one person is good and that is God. I think what he's trying to do is he's trying to nudge this rich guy. He's trying to shake him from this shallow, silly perspective that he's coming to Jesus with. I mean, here he is. He comes running up. He falls on his knees before Jesus, okay? So he recognizes this guy's important. And he asks, how do I inherit eternal life? He doesn't see how silly that question is. 
He doesn't see how selfish that question is. And I'll be honest, I didn't see it either. (laughs) I'm in my 40s, and I didn't recognize how silly this question was until just this week as I was looking at the text. Uh, In fact, I would bet most people don't really recognize how silly the question is, including me, uh, Greg, uh, the Pope. I I think a lot of people read this and they don't really catch this silliness. But if you zoom out and look at the situation, I think you'll see it because this rich man, he falls on his knees. He's before God incarnate. He's before God. The ground of all being, the, the one who sustains all of creation, the word become flesh. And he's face to face with God. And he wants to know how to get into Disneyland, basically. He wants to know, how can I get to heaven? Can you see how silly that is? That's your shot? That's your one thing you're going to say when you're standing face to face with God? Am I going to get into Disneyland? That is so shallow and he doesn't even seem to see. Can you see how that's different than the little children who had to be restrained because they just wanted to be with Jesus? They didn't have questions about, am I going to get my due? Am I going to get my reward? Am I going to get, it was just, I want to be with him. But this rich guy, man, he was thinking about himself and making sure that his future is secured and he's going to be where he wants to be. He doesn't recognize the profound opportunity to just be with God. Why do you call me good? He's trying to get him to say, look, if you're, you're calling me good and only one person is good and that is God. And so, hint, hint, I'm God. <laughs> and you're with God. And this is your shot. And this is what you're asking, really? I think that Jesus is trying to get the man to recognize the profundity of God's existence and his presence. And he's trying to shake him from a cognitive trap that I think a lot of us get into. Uh, Because if you read this story, and this is me, and this is just about everyone I know, you might be thinking, do I have to sell all of my stuff to follow Jesus? That's an indicator that you're in the exact same trap as the rich man. Because I don't think the primary point of this story is money. It is a point of the story, but it's not the primary point. I think the primary point, if it was money, Jesus would have started there. He would have said, you want to know how to inherit eternal life? Go sell all of your stuff and give it to the poor and follow me. But instead, he says all of these other commands and the rich guy says, I've done all that. And he says, okay, well then now do this. It was like a last thought. It wasn't the primary thing that Jesus was saying. Plus, even though the disciples, they seem to have given up a lot to follow Jesus, I don't know of a place where Jesus explicitly tells them to give away everything. And then finally, you have a lot of people who are devoted to Jesus, like Martha, for instance, who has a house and invites the disciples over for dinner and she's got dinnerware and all of that kind of stuff. So it doesn't seem like money is the primary focus of this story. Rather, what I would propose is the primary focus of this story is that look at how each of us, when we approach God, we carry this big false self with us and Jesus primarily cares about deconstructing that big false self. That's the, the one thing that Jesus cares about is we need to tear apart this false self that we're all carrying around with us. You see this in Luke uh, chapter 9 where he says, look, if you want to be my disciple, you have to be real. You have to, you, there's, there's a rawness that's required there. He says in Luke 9 that you have to deny your false self daily. You have to deny yourself daily. You have to lose your life to save it. You have to forfeit the world to save yourself. God is calling us into a big reality, friendship and dwelling with God, and it takes a big compatibility in order to make that happen. 
Now, of course, we tend to come from the opposite perspective. We tend to indulge ourselves daily. We tend to try to secure our lives and our livelihood, and we chase the world trying to save ourselves. And that creates this false self that God is trying to deconstruct any chance that God can. And the fact is, is from this big false self, this inverted perspective, that's where we raise our questions from. That's from where our questions emerge. This rich guy, he's clever. I mean, in order to be wealthy in the first century, you had to be pretty clever or lucky with an inheritance, I suppose. But it just shows how vulnerable we are, all of us, each of us, to having our perspective dumbed down and shallowfied. <laughs> and God wants to break that apart and open us to something bigger. When we come to Jesus, man, we come harassed and helpless. We come with this big jangle of false assumptions, with selfish desires, with ineffective questions. And in the same way that Jesus is trying to shake the rich man from that, I think that the Holy Spirit is constantly trying to shake us from that same fake self that we have. He's trying to strip us down back to that point where we can be just like the little children who just want to be with Jesus. That's all that they want. They just want to be that raw, kind of pure self that just wants to be with our God. The second clause that I took out is from Mark chapter 10, verses 19 to 23. And Jesus says, You know the commandments. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not give false testimony. Honor your father and mother. Teacher, he declared, All of these I have kept since I was a boy. And this part I cut out. Jesus looked at him and loved him. One thing you lack, he said, go sell everything you have and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come and follow me. At this, the man's face fell. He went away sad because he had great wealth. When I read this passage to Barbara this week and I read that when he looked at the man, he loved him, I just, I started crying. And Barbara is very astute. She says, no, why does that make you cry because usually there's something important there if you start bawling like a, a sorry toddler on the couch. There's probably something important there. And, and I said, well, I think it's just, it's very comforting to know that even uh, as sinners, God loves us. And she did not let me get away with that. She said, well, we already knew that. <laughs> Why is this having such a fresh impact on you? Uh, and, and she's right. There was more to it. And I said, I think when Jesus saw the man and loved him, I think what that says to us is this clear indicator that God wants the rich man's presence. God wants the rich man to be with him. In other words, what's, what's happening there is that whatever barriers exist between the rich man and God, it comes from the rich man. Whatever barriers exist between us and God, it comes from us. Money is just one of the potential barriers. That's just one of the potential idols. But we are the ones who refuse to transcend our own greed, our own clinginess, our own neediness. We are the ones who tend to overvalue worthless things and undervalue God's presence. We are the ones who tend to refuse to let go of our big dumb bags as we're approaching this narrow gate, as we're approaching the eye of the needle. In other words, I think that when Jesus looks at the man and loves him, I think what that says is that we are the ones who create the games that we play with God. We are the ones who create the games we play with God. And if that's true, if we are the ones who create the games that we're playing with God, then that should open us up to the possibility that when our faith is failing, when things are dull, when Jesus doesn't seem to give us the answers that we want, maybe it's possible that it's not Jesus who's falling short. 
It's our questions that have fallen short. And sometimes I would propose, if it's true that we are the ones who create the games that we play, then sometimes when God feels hidden, not always, but sometimes it's us who hides him. It's not God who's hidden, it's us who has hidden God. And here's the thing, if we don't realize that it's us who are, who are creating the games that we play with God, guess what? We're going to keep right on playing those dumb games. And this can get really ugly if you do it for a whole life. Uh, in, I don't know, the early 20th century, a journalist asked Bertrand Russell, and Bertrand Russell is this hotshot, famous atheist, and a journalist asked him, what would you say to God if you were to face him? And Bertrand grabbed the cup of his pipe, took it out, and pointed to the journalist. I'm making this part up. I don't know if he actually did that. but he, he, Go with it, though. He points to the journalist, and he says, this is what I'd say to God. I should reproach him for not giving us enough information. I should reproach God for not giving us enough evidence. That's what he said. Can you see the arrogance in that? Can you see how... There's just this shameless assumption in that that I'm the one who creates the criteria for whether or not there's enough evidence. And if I were to see God, I should reproach him for not giving us enough. We are the ones who create the games that we're playing. Now, what I'm not saying here, I'm not saying that if you don't believe in God, it's your fault. I think Jim is right. I think that's silly to say that. It doesn't make any sense. And I'm not saying that everyone has proper evidence. I'm not saying that either. All I'm saying is that if God exists, then it's God who sets the criteria for whether or not there's enough information out there. And so what that means is that if we are seeking God, we would do well to assume that there is enough information out there. And if we don't have enough information, our response should not be to reproach God like Bertrand Russell. Our, rep- our response should be to keep seeking and that's what the Bible tells us over a hundred times in the Old Testament to seek the Lord. Keep seeking the Lord. Seek the Lord like a treasure. Some good will be found in you if you continue to seek the Lord. It's sort of like this confession that it's not easy. The evidence is there, but you've got to look for it. You've got to keep at it. We shouldn't reproach the Lord. No, see, when we create the criteria, when we create the games that we play with God, I think that that dooms us. It keeps our questions shallow. It keeps our questions self-centered. And it keeps our questions totally ineffective. I'm just going to leave with two really quick things uh, to close. The first thing, and these really is about how do I ask better questions? How do I have a teachable spirit? And I just say these really quick. The first one is to keep seeking God. And what I mean by that is to cultivate a desire to be with God. And I know that sounds obvious, but I think what happens is that a lot of times we think we're seeking God when in fact we're seeking something else. And so what I would encourage us to do is to really think deep about do I really want to dwell with God? Do I really want to be in God's presence? Because that's what God is calling us to, to dwell with us, to be our friend. That's what we're being called into. And so to cultivate this desire to be present with God, not to just get presence from God. Uh, and there's a lot of avenues and paths that you can take. And I think Jim was right last week. He said, look, you have to find what way works for you. It could be through quiet time. It could be through prayer. It could be through imaginative prayer or Bible study or whatever. That's something that you have to find what works for you. The second thing is commit yourself to a community that's devoted to looking deeper. Uh, because the world is going to keep right on trying to dull us down, to soften us, to uh, make our questions shallow. And the world's going to keep doing that. So church should be a place that continues to challenge, us, uh, to challenge us and draw us to those bigger realities that God is calling us into. Uh, 
namely to dwell with God as a friend. And in closing, I'll just say this. I see people leaving the church. I mean, their faith goes flat. Things go limp in their brain, and that, just, that happens. We all have ups and downs. I, I get that. But I would encourage you, if you experience that, if you experience that dryness, if you experience that dullness in your faith, I would encourage you to not assume that it says something about the reality of God because there's so many other things that it could be. And sometimes it might even have something to do with what we are bringing to God. It might have something to do with our questions, our seeking, and our big jangly false self that we go before God. And we need to be open to that. And the last thing I'll say about that, and I'm almost out of time, is that uh, when the rich man walked away disappointed, his face fell and he was sad because he had great wealth. Uh, I remember thinking I felt really bad for him because I don't know if I could give up all of my stuff. That's a really big ask. Uh, But I would encourage you to think that that was not the end of the story for the rich young man. I would propose that that was probably just the beginning of his spiritual journey because I think that that disappointment that he felt, that sadness that he felt where his face fell and he walked away, I think that that is all raw material for the Holy Spirit to keep nudging him into these bigger realities that God is calling us into. When you feel sad, when you feel like your faith is shallow, when you feel hopeless about God or whatever, just be open to the possibility that those experiences that you're having is part of the work that the Holy Spirit is doing. The Holy Spirit will work through those things, even those negative experiences, to draw us into the great realities that God is calling us into. I love being part of a church that does seek to look deeper, that does look beneath the surface and does wrestle with the really hard questions. And I don't know if we answer them all, uh, but at least we try. <laughs> at least we wrestle with it. And, and I'm so grateful for the ministry of Greg and, and this church for so many years. Uh, if you would like to take a step and, and maybe wrestle a little bit more, maybe look a little bit deeper, we have these groups called gathering groups, and you can be a part of that. You can go to the, the bulletin on our website. Uh, also, Shauna and I will look deeper on Tuesdays. Although it's the 4th of July this week, so I'm not sure what we're going to do. But we tend to look deeper in the message and we try to pull nuggets out of it that were not said in the message. And this week, I'm going to talk about something that I, I left out of my story where I almost died. So it'll be, it'll be good. And then finally, if you have any prayer requests, you can pray online or there'll be people up here that will pray with you. Have a blessed week. Be careful if you're playing with fireworks and I'll see you next week.